It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let's get right to the most important story today. Jon Stewart is ending his Apple TV show. Yes, we'll talk about President Biden's speech in just a moment. By the way, I noticed that it's Friday. So I hope you have a good weekend coming up. And just a little reminder that Media Buzz, which we are feverishly working on right now, uh, airs on Sunday morning on Fox, 11 Eastern, 8 Pacific. (laughs) Okay, so Stewart went through two uh, seasons, I should say. And this was his real his comeback because he basically been off TV after leaving The Daily Show. And now they are parting ways, Stewart and Apple. Even though the third season was supposed to start in a couple of weeks, over uh, what well, you know, creative differences. That's always the phrase that's trotted out. You know, when I watched the show, it was always an unusual hybrid. In that, you know, you'd have at the beginning John Stewart and talking to his staff and telling jokes, and then he would have these pretty serious interviews. However, Apple executives didn't like some of the topics and the guests, according to unnamed sources. John Stewart telling his staff yesterday that potential show topics related to China, where Apple does a lot of business with the iPhone and artificial intelligence were causing concern among Apple executives. And with the uh, campaign heating up, there was the possibility of further disagreements, delving into current events. You know, the name of the show was The Problem with Jon Stewart. Uh, Could have put Apple at the center of all kinds of political and geopolitical controversies that other major corporations have faced such as, uh, you know, Disney or Starbucks. Liberals protested Starbucks over gun safety concerns. I wasn't even aware of that. Anyway, I think Apple kind of blinked. And this now, these streaming talk shows haven't had a lot of luck. With um, this New York Times piece pointing out that Sarah Silverman, Norm MacDonald, Chelsea Handler... And others, including Netflix, which made several attempts, uh, all of those streaming talk shows now uh, do not any longer exist. All right, story number one. So President Biden spoke for about 15 minutes last night from the Oval Office. And I don't think that's his preferred forum for addressing the country, but nonetheless, he chose it. And I thought the speech was really good. What he was trying to do, obviously, was to tie together the problems facing the crises, I mean, the existential crises facing Israel and Ukraine in order to convince the country that the United States of America needs to support, particularly when it comes to military aid, both of these countries. Uh, I took some notes here. He started out by talking about how there is no limit to the depravity of people 
this dealing with the, you know, he said, I just got back from Israel yesterday, and he talked about the Hamas atrocities. He said people in Israel are in shock and are in deep, deep pain. But then he had talked about having a phone call he was supposed to meet in person in Jordan with uh, Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank, and talked about the need for dignity and self-determination for the Palestinians. So the whole idea of this speech was a balancing act. Not only did Joe Biden have to find a way to link Israel, which almost all Americans and almost all politicians here in Washington want to support, and Ukraine, where there is serious opposition within elements of the Republican Party. But also, he needed to do a rhetorical bow to the suffering of the Palestinians in Gaza, where there are severe shortages of food and water and medicine. And I'll get to that in a moment. And so during that little section, the president said, we cannot ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians. And he made a reference again to that, saying he was heartbroken about the bombing at the hospital in Gaza City, but he said, not done by Israel. And that's beyond dispute now. There is, except when people who don't want to face the facts. He dealt with that quickly. And then he turned to Ukraine and his own visit to Kiev some months ago. By the way, this, he is now a war president. He's not a war president in the sense of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon during Vietnam or George W. Bush during uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. But he is committing the United States to support both of these countries, both of whom the, the connecting thread here, the glue, was that they're both under attack by terrorists and tyrants. In Ukraine, he said there were mass graves. And in the case of Ukraine, it is Russia... In the case of Israel, it is Hamas. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. He went on to say that Hamas doesn't represent all of the Palestinians and, in fact, uses its own people as human shields in terms of the way where it puts the, uh, its military installations and military officials and chief terrorists, I guess you would say. And, you know, knowing that it may be something of a tough sell, Biden said, you know, these problems can seem far away. Um, but as they cause more chaos and more death, the U.S. has to step up and play a role. He talked about Vladimir Putin reminding Poland that its land or some of its land was a gift from Russia. And so when he did it that way, and he kept going back and forth, Israel and the Palestinians, Israel and Ukraine, it was deliberate. He did this in order to say, 
both of these countries, although the circumstances are different, Israel, Ukraine, and he spoke uh, with Vladimir Zelensky, I believe it was yesterday, they both face, to use the president's word, annihilation. They both have enemies who want to wipe it off the map. In the case of Ukraine, it is Russia who says it doesn't even have a right to exist and would become part of Russia. In the case of Israel, since its founding in 1948, terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and some Arab nations talk about wiping it off the map. The president then said that he's not seeking American troops to fight against Russia. He's certainly not seeking American troops, although he might send you know those 2,000 troops that are subject to call-up to Israel just to help in a supporting role, not in a combat role. And he says, if we walk away, we just embolden others. We embolden, in effect, they reward, the U.S. would reward the terrorists. And other um, terrorists around the world, he made a point this time of mentioning Iran and how Iran supports Hamas and how these American alliances with our Western allies keep us safe. He tried to make the case that the national security of the United States of America depends on fighting terrorism, fighting authoritarianism in places like these two countries. Then he pivoted again uh, to Gaza and how people there need food and water. And he mentioned a two-state solution, which all the parties have talked about for so many decades now, and it is farther away, that is Israel and the Palestinians, farther away from happening than it has ever been. But the president did feel the need to mention it. And then he he tried to broaden it in talking about some of the things that are happening in our country. Too much hate being given too much oxygen. And how it was important to denounce both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Again, doing the linkage. Anti-Semitism has been a scourge around the world for thousands of years. And the number of anti-Semitic incidents and hate crimes in the U.S. has been on the rise. And now with the situation in Israel and those, particularly on the far left, who think Israel is the oppressor. Israel didn't start this war, by the way. Israel wasn't seeking to be at war with Hamas. Then, you know, there's a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment around the world and in the U.S. too. And he talked about this awful killing of a six-year-old Palestinian boy by some crazed hate monger. And toward the end, he had this phrase. He said, we are the essential nation. And right now we must rise above petty, partisan, angry politics. He didn't make a specific reference to the fact that the House is still dysfunctional, which I'll get to in a second. Um, But he basically said, you know, Americans must come together because nobody else can do it. No other nation, and we're not alone. We do have allies, uh, certainly have been helping Ukraine and that want to help Israel. 
But we, he said, are the essential nation. And I thought, with Joe Biden not being a great orator, you know, it was another one of these speeches where he's not just reading it off a teleprompter. He was passionate about it. You could see the emotion in his face. Now on Fox, there was ample criticism of the speech being disjointed, how it went back and forth. Um, but Britt Hume, you know, took on his colleagues and said that was one of the best, if not the best, speech I've ever seen President Biden give. I don't think it was quite the speech that he gave in Israel, but it was certainly up in that category. And that's why I come back to this war president mode. I mean, look, Biden didn't seek to have to be the, the chief protector of Israel or Ukraine, but that's what happens when you run for president. Things happen around the globe and you have to respond. Now, will the election probably still be decided on the economy? Yeah. Will Biden's age be a factor? Yes. Will the, whoever he's running against, most likely Donald Trump, be a factor? Yes. But when you're president, you have to lead. And right now, Biden is trying to lead. Meanwhile, to my incredible frustration, not to mention those in the region, even though Biden left Israel with an agreement for Egypt to open the border with Gaza, it still hasn't happened. It still hasn't happened. Egypt and Israel are still squabbling about um, how to allow these convoys in, whether any fuel should be allowed in, how to screen the convoys for arms. It's still going on. I mean, these are historic enemies who are no longer at war, and it doesn't look like any of the aid will be getting to Gaza today. The UN is there trying to facilitate something. Oh, by the way, the hospital bombing, American intelligence agencies have assessed that the explosion outside the hospital killed 100 to 300 people. I, is that an incredible tragedy? Yes, the whole thing is heartbreaking. But it's not exactly the uh, 500 plus that Hamas had uh, touted. Just, you know, I, I'm not surprised that Hamas would exaggerate casualties, but it doesn't make it any less of a tragedy. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Story number two, uh, there's still no House Speaker, and I don't know when there will be. So Jim Jordan failed in the second round. He was going to go for a third round decided not to and decided to throw his weight behind a plan. This is after a very contentious um, Republican meeting in which there was a lot of cursing at Matt Gates for starting this whole thing by toppling Kevin McCarthy. In any event, it seemed like the House Republicans wanted to go to what I call Plan Z, and that is temporarily empowering Patrick McHenry, 
who doesn't want the power, and there are questions about whether this is even constitutional, until the end of the year. And, and Jordan thought to himself, well, okay, that will give me much more time to try to flip some of these uh, holdouts. 22 Republicans voting against him in the second round. He can only afford to lose three. And I figured, well, at least, you know, the House could vote on things like Israel and Ukraine, not to mention the border and other important issues facing the country. And then within a few hours, it seemed like that plan was dead. If not dead, on life support. Here's a Republican member of Congress, Kat Kamak, or Kamak of Florida. The plan certainly does not have support in conference to bring it to the floor. It would have to survive with Democratic votes. We're currently sending, sitting on a tinderbox. So to do that, it would set off the fuse that would certainly end in civil war within the GOP. I don't believe anybody wants to do that. Well, what do we have now? We have a total civil war within the GOP. Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, says the resolution is dead. And some anchors and pundits were using that as well. That led to Jordan saying he's going to force a third ballot today. I don't see how that helps him. I don't see the way out here. Is there anybody in the House of Representatives of a Republican variety who could win 217 votes? There's some other names being tossed around. But remember, you have what Kevin McCarthy called the crazy eight. Eight out of 218 Republicans voted against him, and just with that small number, because of the small margin by which the Republicans hold the House, he's no longer Speaker. Uh, Gates was asked by reporters about the vitriol directed at him. He said, look, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm used to this, I don't take it personally. But he doesn't support giving, he's one of those who doesn't support giving the power to McHenry. He said, that's Speaker Light, like Bud Light. All right, one more point on this. I have no doubt that the heavy-handed tactics of Jordan allies have backfired. And if you need more proof, listen to this voicemail left for the wife of a Republican member of Congress. CNN didn't say which one. Read on the air or played on the air, I should say, by Jake Tapper. Talking about the woman's husband, a member of Congress. Why would he get on TV and make an a-hole of himself? Because he's a deep state prick? Because he doesn't represent the people. So what we're going to do is we're going to effing follow you all over the place. We're going to be up your butt effing nonstop. We are now in Tifa. We're going to do what the left does because you're effing and then another F word, which is a slur for gay people, of a husband gets on TV and says, oh, the bad guys, they did stuff. I need to vote for Kevin McCarthy. A piece of S. Wow. And I'm not done. So F you, F your husband. We are going to, we're not like the left. We're not violent. We're going to follow your ass to every appointment you have, everything you effing do. Your husband's an a-hole. Uh, goes on to say, uh, Israelis being killed and your dumb husband is acting like an effing two-year-old. He's an effing warmongering piece of s. Sorry for all the uh, bad language here. And, of course, it wasn't cleaned up on the voicemail. So, listen, you're going to keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information on the Internet now, and you will not be left alone. Because of your effing, effing husband, the second F again. I, I mean, this, Jake Tapper said, this is disgusting. 
Disgusting. You won't be able to go to the beauty parlor. You must be a bitch to marry an effing ugly MFer like that. Okay, so I was thinking maybe this is not a Jordan ally, not somebody working with Jim Jordan, just some crazy effer. But then how would he have access to the phone number to leave this voicemail message for the member's wife? It just shows you how ugly it's gotten. And now you think this this member of Congress, and we don't know who it is, is going to say, well, gee, I'm seeing the light now. I will vote for Jim Jordan on the next round. No. And there have been at least two separate members who said they've received credible death threats. Again, I'm not blaming Jim Jordan for that. But these are hardball tactics that have backfired and I think have made it harder, if not nearly impossible, for him to win the speakership. So we continue chaos in the House no House Speaker for more than two weeks. Number three, and this is a big one if you follow the Trump trials, and I follow all of them so you can have a life. Sidney Powell, who was a member after the 2020 election of Donald Trump's legal team, she was the one who said she was going to unleash the Kraken. Well, she pleaded guilty yesterday in that Georgia case Fulton County, Georgia, to six misdemeanor counts just a few days before her trial was to begin next week. She's one of 19 defendants, and another one of those 19 defendants is Donald Trump. So because my audience is smart, you'll immediately get the significance of this. Under this plea bargain, Sidney Powell doesn't have to do any jail time. She will be on probation for six years. She has to pay a couple of sizable fines. She has to write a letter of apology to the citizens of Georgia. I've never heard of that particular remedy or element of a plea bargain. And... She not only turns over whatever document she has, she has to testify truthfully in the upcoming trial. So as the New York Times puts it, the guilty plea was a blow to Trump, who faces the most charges of any defendant along with Rudy Giuliani, 13 counts. It means a member of the Trump legal team will cooperate with the prosecution as it pursues criminal convictions related to efforts to keep the former president in power. So she appeared in court in Atlanta yesterday, said she understood, and so forth. She One of the things she pleaded to was a state racketeering law, violating that law. But everything was kind of written down to a misdemeanor. Now, she was always perhaps the most eccentric of the Trump attorneys, I mean, in fact, there was a point before they kind of sidelined her where one member of the Trump legal team, I don't remember if it was Rudy or not, said she was crazy. She was too crazy for Donald Trump. Now, she would make these appearances and she would say, she would just spew out these conspiracy theories that the 2020 election was affected by Venezuela, by Cuba, by China, by George Soros by Hugo Chavez, by the Clintons. And that voting machines had flipped Trump, excuse me, flipped 
uh, votes from Trump to Biden. In fact, the thing, the most serious charge that she, to which she has now pleaded guilty is that she herself interfered with the voting machines in Fulton County. Needless to say, had she not done this, she faced years in prison, possible loss of her law license. She was a frequent visitor to the White House after the election and had direct dealings with not only other members of this team, but with President Trump, who in fact, for a time, I guess before she fell onto the S list, actively considered naming her a special counsel to review vote fraud. And in a classic sentence of Timesian understatement, that makes her a potentially valuable witness for the prosecution. But the idea that she would be, that she would even be considered to be a special counsel to review vote fraud and now is pleading guilty to fraudulent interference with the 2020 election in Georgia. Well, let's just say there's a certain bit of irony there. And although having 19 defendants, one other has already pleaded guilty, uh, is makes for a very unwieldy case for District Attorney Fannie Wallace. Well, the advantage of it is you try to flip certain people. I mean, this is true in any criminal prosecution, but Fannie Willis realized that you got to, you charge all these people, none of this unindicted co-conspirator stuff, and then you try to get people to plead guilty in exchange for their testimony. So, you know, people on TV jumping up and down yesterday about what a potentially major legal setback this is for Donald J. Trump. Now, I don't know when this trial's going to be heard because you got, you know, all these other competing trials, including, including the two federal cases. But let's just say the Trump lawyers can't be too pleased at the idea that Sidney Powell would, as of now, be the star witness, be the prosecution's most important witness against defendant Donald Trump. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. Now, you might say to me, Howie, okay, why is this news? But this is about a new book that has now come out from Britney Spears. And my conscience is clear. I feel perfectly comfortable talking about this because... There's a whole piece on this in The Grey Lady, The New York Times, which I guess obtained an advanced copy of the book from a bookstore, which is the paper's way of signaling, okay, this wasn't given to us by Spears' PR person. And The Times and The Washington Post often get these books first because they have arrangements with certain friendly bookstores who get these boxes, you know, maybe a few days before the thing is supposed to go on sale. Anyway. 
given the important cultural um, significance of Britney Spears, and you remember, I mean, it was an absolutely legitimate and fascinating news story, her battle against the conservatorship imposed by her dad, in which she finally won, a legal battle that she finally won and is now free to do as she pleases. But there came a point during the 13 years that the conservatorship strictly governed her life and career that she gave up fighting it. She says in the book, The Woman in Me. Maybe you've seen the cover. She's kind of topless, but not completely facing the camera, shall we say. Her father, James Spears, had been put in charge of her affairs back in 2008 after she was twice hospitalized for involuntary psych assessments. She pushed back privately, but utterly she became exhausted and she feared losing access to her two sons. Uh, After being held down on a gurney, she writes, I knew they could restrain my body anytime they wanted to, and so I went along with it. My freedom in exchange for naps with my children. It was a trade I was willing to make. Now, the article points out that the book itself is incomplete because after the conservatorship, she married a guy named Hessam Asghari, known as Sam, who filed for divorce in August after a little more than a year. So I guess that was too late to be included in the book. Uh, Part of it deals with her romance with Justin Timberlake, which was said to be great, but the breakup, which he said he initiated over text message. I never get this. Seems like an awfully cold-blooded way to do it, as leaving her, quote, devastated. She says that when he put out a music video, Cry Me a River, in which, as she describes it, a woman who looks like me cheats on him and he wanders around sad in the rain, she viewed the media as portraying her as a harlot who'd broken the heart of America's golden boy when in reality, she says, I was comatose in Louisiana and he was happily running around Hollywood. So maybe a little difference here. Also, oh, that's right. People Magazine had the first excerpt, so that was the authorized leak. And a couple days ago revealed that her decision to get an abortion after becoming pregnant while in the relationship with Justin Timberlake, uh, she didn't view it as a tragedy, but he thought they were too young, leading her to agree not to have the baby. Okay, after the breakup, she felt forced by her father and management team uh, to do an interview with Diane Sawyer of ABC News. Sawyer pressed her on what she did to Timberlake that caused him so much pain. I don't know. Why couldn't she have said no if she didn't want to do the interview? Oh, she confirms, by the way, a longtime rumor when she says she kissed the choreographer Wade Robson, Robson, excuse me, during her relationship with Timberlake. But she suggested her behavior was related to rumors of Timberlake's unfaithfulness. So let's get this straight. The rumors that he's cheating on her. So she kisses this guy. Is that all she cops to? Anyway, she says the Diane Sawyer interview was a breaking point for her. I felt like I had been exploited, set up in front of the whole world. 
Well, I mean, when you consider a lot of what she puts on her Instagram, I don't know that it's a Diane Sawyer interview that's going to take her down. And finally, she says in the book her drug of choice is Adderall, taken for ADHD, which made me high, yes, but what I found far more appealing was that it gave me a few hours of feeling less depressed. Okay. Now, let's wrap things up as we head into the weekend. Story number five is a story about baseball, but it's a fascinating little sort of sidebar story from The Athletic, which is affiliated with the New York Times after the Times um, bought the thing and then abolished its own sports desk. So uh, Max Scherzer was uh, getting ready to pitch. And this isn't a, a lot of details about X's and O's, trust me. Max Scherzer, a uh, well-known uh, major league pitcher who has won three Cy Young Awards. Anyway, he's in the playoffs, and this is the all-Texas playoff between Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers. And he's on the mound, and suddenly he hears a voice in his ear. And that is his senior director of research and development at the Rangers, who was telling him what pitch to throw. This guy, who works for the Texas Rangers, has a one-second cameo for every Rangers pitch as the voice of the team's pitchcom. Now, maybe you've heard of this. I didn't know about pitchcom, which is why I find it kind of interesting. It's a device that catchers use to signal pitch and location to the pitcher who's 60 feet, 6 inches away. Now, the reason this was approved by Major League Baseball is that there was a lot of uh, sign stealing. You know, I mean, going back decades and part of the romance of baseball, you know, the catcher who would call the game, sometimes the pitcher would shake him off would put down two fingers or one fingers or a fist or whatever, but in the opposing dugout, they would try to figure out what these signals meant. And if they could relay that to the batter, he would have an advantage if he knew that a fastball or a curve or a um, changeup was coming. So people aren't actually seeing this, but in his ear, I guess you got to wear some kind of device, uh, Scherzer, and this doesn't only apply to the Texas Rangers, and this doesn't only apply to Max Scherzer. It is now used by all 30 teams, and it comes standard with tracks recorded by a voiceover artist. Now, you can take, this is like uh, one of those home assistants, like A-L-E-X-A, or maybe a better analogy would be, it's more like Siri, you can change to a British voice or female voice, whatever you want. Okay, so if you want, though, you can record your own tracks. And some teams have done that. And this grew popular after there was a media report that the catcher for the Cleveland Guardians had recorded an F, yeah, track to cue sometimes two or three times after a nasty pitch. <laughs> this is hysterical. So these conversations are going on either with the recorded track 
or you get your own guy to do his own. Next thing you know, it'll be celebrities. I'm positive of it. Pitchcom co-founder John Hankins said about a third of, of Major League Baseball teams now have recorded their own tracks. The Phillies recorded two sets uh, with the catcher in English and an interpreter in Spanish. How do you like that? So this is a little bit of baseball lore, baseball lore updated for the 21st century. Hey, as I said at the top, hope you have a good weekend coming up. Media Buzz, 11 Eastern on Fox Sunday morning. Hope you'll catch it. And I'll be back here on Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.